Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by DB, a Scandinavian brand making backpacks and bags to help you when you're on the move, help you stay ready for anything. Doesn't matter if you're going to the streets, if you're hitting the mountains and going to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, creators, those types, you know, just like you. And over the past decade, DB has designed, they've developed, they've released, and they've refined some of the best bags in the market. Plus, it's got this sweet hookup system. You're able to attach smaller products to your backpack. Uh, It's really nice. And I'll tell you, if you're headed to rock and roll shows, if you're one of the fortunate few who are safely getting to navigate to a festival, well, could be really helpful to have a nice little bag with you to carry all the things that you need. Just make sure they check it at the gate, okay? Uh, We're teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase. Just use the code POD10, P-O-D-10, or go to the link in our show notes. You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate Rock and roll bedtime stories. We're, we're here to get rid of that rumor, the innuendo about your favorite bands and songs. I'm Brian. Yep, 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 yep. That's Murdoch. Murdoch. That's, that's, yeah. Uh, so the song on the intro, uh, on that particular intro, is uh, Hark the Herald from their 2008 record, Aurora. It is called Counterpointless. Love that. Uh, hey, man. We have been spending the last several episodes getting gnarly, and the fans love it. We've been talking serial killers. We've been talking knife fights. Uh, we talked about karaoke going very, very badly. Uh, but I thought, yeah. I thought for balance today that we would stop down and talk about something beautiful instead. And I hope we're not talking about the Van Halen record balance. There wasn't anything beautiful about that at all. But keep going. It's not that. All right. Great. Okay. Keep going. Is that the one with the two kids on it? Like on the. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, So, no, I thought we would. I thought we would talk about a beautiful friendship. Uh, It's been a tough week. I'm thinking a lot about friendships. I'm thinking a lot about friends. And uh, and and I thought, you know, if if we're going to talk about friendships full of you know, shared influence and big ideas and landmark albums and a redefinition of what post-punk would become and drugs. Lots and lots of drugs define this particular friendship. So we're not talking about yours and mine friendship. Uh, I think both of us did drug drugs separately. We don't really do drugs together and we don't do them that, anymore. <laughs> you know, you know what, you know, it's really adorable. We have a, a wonderful friendship since we've met and we were doing podcasts a decade ago. Right. For Pete's right. sake. And you know what we've never done? Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> we might be losing our credibility. There's so, there's people suddenly flipping to Joe Rogan. They're like, listen, I know that guy does horse dewormer. So he, he's much cooler than these fellas. Yeah. Okay. I, hey, I'm, I'm a guy. I'm glad that YouTube did not exist in certain parts and eras of time that, um, you know, do you, do you think doing... that do you think that we would have been friends if we met at a different point in our lives? Like my wife and I talk about this cuz she's like if you knew me in high school we wouldn't have been friends. And I always think that's interesting. I I feel like I've been sort of the same person. But I'm curious if you think cuz you've referenced this before. Do you think if I met you in your 20s we would have been friends? If I was also in my 20s and not like 13? Yes. Oh, okay, good. Good, good, good. Uh 
That's that didn't seem I didn't hesitate a bit on on that. My wife always brings it up and says and says we would have never been together if I'd met you. And I'm like, all right. I know. Okay. Is, that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think my wife's saying it about her. But when your wife says it about you guys, is she saying it about her or about you? Oh, she's just saying we would not be together. Yeah, she's saying about her. She's oh, like, got it. There's got no it. way we'd be. I would have been been with you in, in your 20s. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> listen, we we all we all did some things that were worthy of rumor and innuendo. Uh, but speaking of rumor and innuendo, we are talking not about Brian and Murdoch and their amazing friendship. We're talking about the beautifully dysfunctional friendship of David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Yay! Oh wow, man! You just like okay. Bring in the bring in the ice cream cake, won't you? <laughs> Lots of rumors about that pairing. Given that Bowie was always gender fluid, and Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop never cared about what anybody thought about anything. But when you dig into this relationship, you actually don't find much there in terms of sexual or romantic. What you find is a level of friendship beyond what I think most of us can imagine. And, and so, to illustrate this, I'm going to ask you a question. This is a sincere question, Murdoch. If I was in a psychiatric hospital and you knew that they were not letting me do recreational drugs in there, are we the kind of friends where you would be so concerned about my need to do drugs that you would smuggle them into the hospital for me? I, I think so. While wearing a spacesuit? I just don't think I could get... I, no, I'd have to wear like a doctor's <laughs> outfit, dude. You gotta... How about, would you, would you bring along a movie star? Because that, damn it, is the kind of friendship we are talking about when we talk about Iggy and Bowie. Before we get all the way into that sordid tale, let's do a quick context check, career explainer for these two, and we can start with Bowie. I don't feel like a lot of times when we start with an artist we haven't discussed at length on the show, I feel like we need to discuss whether what our personal feelings are about. I think we can just right. agree that Bowie is Bowie. Like, we both love Bowie, right? Yeah, sure. I like Iggy. I, I like Iggy more, and I enjoy the Stooges more than I like all of Bowie's work. You know what song Bowie says changed his life as a kid? Uh, Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, you're kind of in the right ballpark. Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. Oh, it always it always goes back to Little Richard. It always goes back to Little Richard. We actually did an episode about Little Richard and about how, you know, like the rock and roll history hasn't really been kind to Little Richard. He said, there is a quote where Bowie said that the first time he heard Tutti Fruity, it was like he heard God. It, it's really weird when Lemmy was still alive. That Lemmy cited Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, th- those those were his, his influence. You know, his influences weren't Pink Floyd. It's like right. now his his influences were were that. By the way, Dave Grohl and Lemmy. I heard this story. They, they became friends, and he knew Dave Grohl knew that he Lemmy loved. Little Richard mm-hmm. and some guy at LAX approached Dave Grohl and said, Hey, I heard you really wanted to meet Little Richard. And he's like, Yeah. And he goes, It's my dad. What? Do you want to come meet him over here? What? And so Dave Grohl comes over and and they you know they whisper to each other and the window comes down. And he's like, Hey, God bless. Yeah, here you go. And he like hands him an autographed an autograph, like, you know, some a thing that has like Bible verses and stuff on it. <laughs> and he was going to give it to Lemmy for his birthday. And Lemmy, Lemmy did not live to that birthday to get that Little Richard present. So uh, Little Richard made such an impact 
huge that David Bowie <laughs> that, that Tutti Fruity was the song that did it for him. What was the song that did it for you? Like, what's the first time that you remember the quote, like the I heard God moment in, in rock and roll? What was that song for you? The, the Michael Jackson smack across the face, like the first time maybe I saw, I think I saw Billy Jean on Friday night videos before I saw it on MTV. True story. I really do think that's true. Because wow. that was that was uh, NBC's other thing. So, wow. Sweet Dreams. I saw the Sweet Dreams video. That was a, a life-changing, weird moment. Because yeah. that video is totally weird. Yeah, it is really super weird. Uh, so, I think for me... I, there's a couple things. I mean, I heard the punk band MXPX. Remember, I was sheltered and not allowed to listen to a lot of stuff. When I heard the punk band MXPX, I remember being like, what is this? Uh, and the, But even more than that, there's this band that has been lost to history that was called Dear Ephesus, which is a biblical reference because they were sort of on the fringes of Christian music. And they had a song that started... First of all, the guy read way too many books, and he named one of their records The Consolation of Pianissimo. And on, on the first track on the Constellation of Pianissimo is a song called Portrait. And it, it's basically sort of like stuck in between second and third stage emo. Um, a li- you know, kind of it, a toe in the water with Sunny Day Real Estate, but a little more melodic than that, right? Like edging towards Jimmy Eat World. And so there's this song on that record that I just never heard anything like it because I hadn't heard any of that stuff. And this is late 90s, mid 90s maybe. And it was... Uh, he would sing sort of high and there was a lot of those, you know, the, the kind of the emo thing where it, it, it starts slow and then it becomes angry and loud and then it goes back and, you know, there's these ebbs and flows and I had just never heard anything like it. And it blew my mind. Funny story about it. Addendum to that is that several years after hearing that record, he was part of a group that was touring around doing like a, poetry thing where they were showing up at these coffee houses and reading poetry, but all billed as the lead singers of these different bands. And he was on the bill and I went to see him and the record is dark. And so I was really anticipating this guy who was very dark and, and moody and, and he got up and he was like hilarious and making jokes and everybody thought he was funny. And I remember like leaving there being really disillusioned because <laughs> guy who made this sad music that made me access this part of myself I didn't know was there was like a funny good time guy in person right which is a lot of times the case but I just wasn't like old enough and mature enough and had been around enough rock music to realize that and this it was this real moment for me but I he went on to make films he's made some movies and stuff it's it's been a real interesting career but yeah that that record did it for me which is a super obscure rabbit hole to send us down and I need to get us out of it really quickly so I apologize <laughs> There's like about most of the audience right now is like, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) And back to David Bowie. Yeah, back to David Bowie. Okay, so David Bowie, Little Richard, big deal. Uh, You know who else was a big influence on him? He had a maternal half-brother named Terry Burns. Have you ever heard about Terry Burns? Mr. Burns? No. (laughs) Tell me about Terry Burns. He he wasn't that old. Uh, He was 10 years older than Bowie, though. And he had schizophrenia. Oh, sending the hounds. He lived alternately at home and in psychiatric wards. So Bowie had always been around those people who were struggling with mental illness and mental health. And those were kind of like, those were his folks. Like that's how he found out all the things that he loved was from his half-brother. His half-brother Terry showed him modern jazz. 
He showed him wow. Buddhism. He showed him beat poetry. He showed him the occult. Like all this stuff came from his his brother. Wow. It, it turns wow. out that tons of folks in Bowie's extended family actually had spectrum disorders, like things like schizophrenia. So this sort of thing always has been present in Bowie's artistic work. He had an aunt who was institutionalized, and he had another one who actually underwent a lobotomy back when they were doing that. So Ugh. that sort of thing will influence you, right? So when you see a wild man on stage, shirtless and boldly turning a Jim Morrison impression into a movement, you probably don't say, what a weirdo. You say, that's my people, right? <laughs> it's a different reaction. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about Bowie's career. Uh, almost forgotten that Bowie flailed and failed before he ever flew. Uh, and it took a while for him to name himself after a knife, right? Uh, he put out a single under the name Davy Jones and the King Bees in 1964 yeah. when he was 17. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's sort of a Paul McCartney impression or like 400 other things from that era, but how crazy to think about that's 64. Yeah, 1964. Uh, that song, not a hit. Now, he had a whole album out by 67 uh, with that fancy new name, David Bowie, and that didn't do well either. I re- actually remember, I think we worked together at this point in radio. I remember getting a box of those when they reissued it. Where, did we work together at that time? I don't know if it was that record, Brian, but we did work together when, when there were Bowie reissues. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I can I can say that for sure. But, but not the that... good ones. I, I remember being disappointed because I was really excited we got Bowie reissues, no. and then I listened to that and was like, what is this? No, and I should I should clarify. They were early Bowie reissues. Like, we weren't getting Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. I kept waiting for that box to show up and it never did. Have you like, do you remember the first song on that record is this song called Uncle Uncle Arthur, which is equally so weird? Yeah. Strikes the bell for five o'clock. Uncle Arthur closes shop. Screws the tops on. I mean, I guess it sounds a little bit more like David Bowie now, but it's still, he, he hasn't figured out who he wants to be yet. No, he, he hasn't decided to be a space alien. Lucky for rock and roll history, Bowie starts studying theater. And he gets obsessed with this idea of creating a persona. So that record opens with Uncle Arthur. But his next record opens up with a song called Space Oddity. Once I got old enough to understand what Bowie had did with this thing and this character, it just seemed to be so out of sight. It seemed to be such a, a grand idea. And right. it seemed like it was executed flawlessly and and well and, it, and space oddity gives him the confidence, right? And he goes on to do this publicity tour in America to promote it. Now, they made a movie about this publicity tour in the last few years. Have you seen it? It's called Stardust. Uh I did see it, yes. It's got Johnny Flynn playing Bowie, and then Mark Marin plays his publicist. Yes. And yeah. it's I wa- it's not very good. <laughs> the movie's sort of unwatchable. I didn't finish it. I was I was in sort of a Bowie thing and I was um I forget the name of Bowie's guitar player that he played with around the Space Odyssey time and I was going through this wormhole listening to all of his music and I, then I was like I'm going to watch that movie. 
Well, yeah, here's the interesting thing not... about that movie. Bowie's estate didn't approve the film. And so ah. they wouldn't grant rights to Bowie's music. So Stardust has Bowie performing covers that the real Bowie performed in this period, but not Bowie songs. <laughs> so like he does a Yardbird song in the movie. <laughs> like, just weird stuff. Uh, but you can understand why they'd want to make a movie about this trip, because it's during this time in America that Bowie starts quote, scrawling notes on a cocktail napkin. And on his return to England, he comes back with this intention to create a character. He says this character is going to, quote, look like he's landed from Mars. Now, who were the inspirations for this character? He has said there were two Americans that he'd been exposed to on this trip that really played into who this character was going to become. And they were named Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. Oh, wow. I was going to say Grace Jones? In okay. fact, Ziggy partly copped from Iggy. To turn our attention to Iggy Pop for a moment, or James Newell Osterberg Jr., as his birth certificate claims, he was born in Michigan in 1947. He grew up in a trailer. Like this, like way before Kid Rock, this guy was putting Detroit on the map coming out of a trailer. He says his parents were so supportive of his interests that at one point they actually slept elsewhere in their trailer so he could put a drum kit in their master bedroom. That, that I have heard that before. That is a great thing to hear. He plays drums in bands in the 60s, uh, the Iguanas, the Prime Movers. He goes to school at the University of Michigan, ends up dropping out. But at the university in 67, he sees the Doors perform and it changes his life. This is a quote from Iggy. I attended two concerts by The Doors, and the first one I attended was early on, and they'd not gotten their shit together yet. That show was a big, big influence on me. They just had their big hit, Light My Fire, and here's this guy out of his head on acid, dressed in leather with his hair all oiled and curled. The stage was tiny, and it was really low, and it got confrontational. I just found it really interesting, and part of me was like, wow, this is great. He's pissing people off. The other half of it was like, if they've got a hit record and he can get away with this, I have no excuse not to do this on stage with my band. <laughs> wow. So he starts, wow. he starts Psychedelic Stooges. Uh, they, they happen in Chicago. And in 1968, they get a deal at Electra Records. And they put out a couple of records that don't sell. And Iggy does lots of heroin. Uh, they end up losing the record deal. They break up. And in 1971... One night at Max's Kansas City, Iggy meets Bowie. We should side note on Max's for a moment. You think Max's is a more influential rock club than CBGB? No, but I, 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 I do think that it's very important. If you're not familiar, here's a quick rundown on Max's. Max's Kansas City was a nightclub and restaurant at 213 Park Avenue South in New York City. And it became this really hot gathering spot for musicians and poets and artists and politicians in the 60s and 70s. It was opened by this dude, Mickey Ruskin, in December 65, and it was closed in 81. Now, I'm not going to read the full list of celebs that hung out there, but just know it's long and impressive. Most famously, you've got the Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, Patti Smith, and then like all the glam dudes. And I should point out, this is my favorite part of this story, that place, a steakhouse. Like, not just a bar. Yeah. <laughs> like, they served steak. Glam Rock was birthed in a steakhouse. I don't know why that's yeah. hilarious to me, but it is. Yeah. I, man, I I went to CBGB's, 
And the first time I went in there, uh, I walked up and stood next to the bar. Uh, and this guy had uh, some marijuana. <laughs> and uh, I the and I, I mean, it's just black. It's just dark or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, someone yeah, goes, yeah. oh, hey, look, there's Joey Ramon. And it happened so fast. And I'm not even like. 15 feet in the door. Wow. Like, and you're like, oh, the, all my dreams. <laughs> all my yeah. dreams are coming true. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I saw Sugar Ray and I saw them before. Um, the night I that just, Joey Ramone was there, you were there to see Sugar Ray? Yeah, I saw Sugar Ray <laughs> and I saw Fight with, with Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Oh, wow. I saw both those bands. And and Sugar Ray was still it was the Nicole Eggert record the metal band, with her, yeah, Lemonade and Brownies, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, and as soon as he was the band was done, all these girls started just because you have to walk up on stage to get backstage or d- to down to those awful bathrooms, and just all these girls just walked up on stage. I was like, oh my god, this is so gross. Where are they going? In the back with Mark McGrath. Oh, man. Uh, So I first became familiar with Max's when I was in high school because I heard that Velvet Underground live album. And growing up more in the middle of the country, I knew what Kansas City was. So I was intrigued by this idea of an influential rock club being named after Kansas City. But do, do you know why it was named that? Purportedly, it comes from the poet Joel Oppenheimer. Uh, there's a documentary on Max's Kansas City in which Oppenheimer says he heard Mickey Ruskin wanted to open a steakhouse and said, quote, when I was a kid, all the steakhouses had Kansas City on the menu because the best steak was Kansas City cut. So I thought it should be something Kansas City. And so that's what they did. They just named it Max's Kansas City. So this place, this is the setting for our pair to put eyes on each other and simultaneously recognize that they were similar souls who appreciated art and experimentation and hard drugs. Uh, and, and man, can you imagine how awesome it would be to be in that situation? And then you hang out at this place all the time and it's a steakhouse. <laughs> I know that's the part that makes me laugh is that it's not just, you just think of this as being like CBGB's right. CBGB's nasty rock club. Like, gross. Like, you just described it. It's dark. Joey Ramone walked past you and you barely knew it. I'm sure the floors were sticky. But no, you're doing all this and you're in a steakhouse? Sign me up. Uh, So, there's a great quote from David Bowie who says, quote, I met Iggy Pop at Max's Kansas City in 1970 or 71. Me, Iggy, and Lou Reed at one table with absolutely nothing to say to each other just looking at each other's eye makeup. Oh, that's so beautiful. Uh, Eventually, they find a little more to talk about. They become buddies, and Bowie gets involved in the new album that Iggy is working on. Now, this album, of course, becomes... Raw Power. Raw Power. Oh, my gosh. Another quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by DB, Scandinavian Bags. They make backpacks. They make bags to help people on the move. They're keeping you ready for anything. It doesn't matter where you're going. DB is going to be great. You're going to the store? Cool. Grab your DB bag. You're going on vacation? Grab your DB bag. You're going to a music festival? Strap the little bag onto the big bag with their amazing hookup system and uh, then rock out. It's all there for you. And you can check it out for yourself. 10% off. All you got to do, pod 10. That's the code. P-O-D-1-0. Or go to the link in our show notes. 
Raw power. Raw power. Oh my gosh. It's so significant in my life. Uh, what? Yeah, tell me that story. Why is it significant to you? I moved from New York City to Colorado and I was dating somebody and and I really was in a car with people and they were listening to Britney Spears or something and they're like and they straight up just were like, Hey, why don't you put something on the radio? And I, I put on uh I put on <laughs> I put on raw power and like, I just, and I, I didn't know, I didn't know these people at all. And I was like, well, fuck, I screw it. So that, that did it for me. And, and Hey, like a couple days ago, I just accidentally saw this thing and it was Iggy talking and it was about, it was about Bowie. And it was when they decided they were going to, they remixed, um, raw power a couple of times. Oh, and, oh and he okay. Wanted... We're going to talk about yeah. that. We're getting to that. Okay. So hold on. Yeah. Pause right. just for All a right. second. Uh, <laughs> a raw power, a record that is very underappreciated in its time goes on to become quite heralded, uh, and includes both search and destroy and give me danger. One uh, of my top 10, top 10 favorite albums of all time. And I want to be careful not to lose the casual fan base here because we're about to veer into some ridiculously nerdy territory and you've already stepped on it a little bit. We're going to talk about the mixes to this record because it's one of the most remarkable things about this album is the lore surrounding the mixing. Even now, if you go on Spotify or YouTube, you can get a little overwhelmed by the amount of alternate mixes to these songs. So, like, what's the story on that, right? Iggy is actually signed as a solo artist at this point on Columbia but he doesn't really have a band. And he's writing with his new guy, James Williamson, who ends up co-writing and playing lead on every song on the record. But he convinces the Ashton brothers to come back and do this record with him. So he essentially reforms the Stooges. But this record comes out not as the Stooges or not as Iggy Pop. It actually comes out as Iggy and the Stooges initially. So Iggy decides he's going to produce and mix this album by himself. But he's on a lot of drugs, and he's not that experienced. And the story goes that he screws it up, that he actually mixes all the instruments into one stereo channel and then the vocals into another and doesn't really pay attention to balance or tone quality. The head of Bowie's management company, Main Man, his name's Tony DeFreeze, he tells Iggy, buddy, I am bringing Bowie in to remix this. So they bring Bowie in and they tell Bowie he has one day. <laughs> and Bowie says, quote, Iggy brought the 24-track tape in and he put it up. He had the band on one track, lead guitar on another, and him on a third. And out of 24 tracks, there were just three tracks that were used. He said, see what you can do with this. And I said, there's nothing to mix. So we just pushed the vocal up and down a lot. On at least four or five songs, that was the situation including Search and Destroy. That's got yes. such a peculiar sound because all we did was occasionally bring the lead guitar up and then take it back out. Yeah. But, and I'm thinking this might be what you're talking about, Morgan Neville put out a documentary in 2010 called Raw Power. Is that what you saw? Maybe. I'm it, not sure, man. Days just kind of blend together. <laughs> in that doc, the he actually demonstrates that each individual instrument was indeed recorded on its own track on the original multi-track tape, suggesting that Bowie was either just mistaken or working with the copy that had mixed down the instruments onto the same track. 
And, and what I the footage I saw was Iggy was in a studio, and James Williamson was in part of the footage, but he wasn't in the initial shot that has Iggy in it in a studio. And he said that they had four faders, and and that I- Iggy said that he himself was just handling the bass and the drums, and then Bowie handled everything else. Listen, this is the summary I'm going to give you. Drugs are bad, kids. All right? Like, everybody (laughs) in this situation was on a lot of drugs. Regardless, the mythos around different mixes of this album have persisted since it was pressed. Low-fidelity copies of Pop's original mixes were circulating among fans forever. And then in 93, a selection of those original mixes were released by Bomp Records as Rough Power. So there's, like, a different thing you can buy called Rough Power instead of Raw Power. I don't even have that. That's funny. Fans and critics generally agree that those original mixes are interesting, but not necessarily superior to what Bowie did. And then in 96, Columbia Records invites Iggy to remix the entire album because they're going to re-release it on CD. Remember those things? Uh, The remixed edition was released on April 22nd, 97. And then since then, there have been other reissues of the whole thing. 2010, 2012. So Raw Power comes out in February of 73. Critics have good things to say about it, but it definitely becomes much more important influential record later than it did a successful record out of the gate. Oh yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. And and for me um I think as a performer as a frontman, I mean Iggy pops up there with Jagger for me. I mean, he's not an R&B singer. There's definitely right? references made to, you know, him aping Jagger, right? It's, I mean, he will claim Jim Morrison, but there's definitely some Jagger in what he does. Yeah, he's just really physical, you know. Very much so. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, he tries to take it back out on tour again, right? They, you know, they've already broken up once, and they decide now, with this new record in tow, they're going to go on tour. And here we stop just to illustrate how insane all of this had gotten. And we're going to leave Bowie for just a second at the studio, and we're going to talk about the last show the Stooges play before they break up again. This is absolutely legendary. It's almost exactly a year after Raw Power is released, and the band is back in Iggy's home territory performing at the Rock and Roll Farm in Wayne, Michigan. And to your point about him being physical and going for it on stage, at this point, Iggy has been performing in a leotard. Uh, And this bar, the Rock and Roll Farm, it attracted a particular crowd. And I'm just going to state they weren't really guys in leotards kind of crowd. They tended to ride... Levi's and Wranglers Yeah, they they tended to ride big motorcycles. Specifically for a biker gang named the Scorpions. Not to be confused with the Scorpions, the band. Uh, so, this, can you imagine if that's actually the story? And then he played, and yeah. <laughs> uh, Klaus Minor was there. Uh, the, the story goes on that uh, on a particular night, these bike gang buddies show up, and they have a new member to initiate. And it just happens that Iggy Pop is playing at the bar. And so they tell this new member, here are some raw eggs. Go see if you can hit the band with these eggs during the set Uh, and we'll let you in the gang 
As you can imagine, oh. Iggy, not a fan of this behavior, but his solution slash reaction is to begin taunting the bikers from the stage and then diving into the crowd to fight. And Iggy gets beat up. But Iggy doesn't really back down. Uh, as he already has proven up to this point in his career, he is way more likely to double down in any given situation than to back down, and that is what he does. He He has to go do press the next day at a Detroit radio station, WABX. And he gets on the mic and he tells this whole biker gang to meet him at the Michigan Palace show that he's playing that week. He taunts them and says, guys, you want to do this? Come on, let's do it again. Come see me at the Michigan Palace show. But Iggy knows not to issue an idle threat. So remember the Ashtons are back with him. So, Scott Ashton, the drummer's like, dude, I got friends in a different biker gang, God's Children. So he, <laughs> he calls his buddy in God's Children. Also sounds like gang. A, that also sounds like a metal metal band. And a, it's a big gang. <laughs> Jesus loves the little children. They all show up. So there's all these bikers at this party. And to keep this completely on brand, completely on brand, they record the show that night. Oh, wow. So to give you a taste of what Iggy was doing from the stage, there's actual proof of this. It's on an album. It's called Metallic KO. Uh, oh, yeah, dude. I, hey, I have heard this awful piece of garbage you're about to play for everyone. So just, okay. what are you giving well, up? What for? I really want you to hear is uh, the introduction, uh, some, of the, some of the banter that he's doing from the stage. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your kind indulgence. And for this evening's next selection, I would be proud to present a song was co-written by my mother entitled, I Got My Cock in My Pocket. So that's what's coming from the stage in a bar full of bikers. Uh, hey, 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 Brian, Brian, cocaine is a hell of a drug. It really is. <laughs> heroin. He's not a cocaine guy. He's a heroin guy. Bowie's into the cocaine. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the Lester Bangs piece that he wrote about this. Lester Bangs describes the recording of this show, which does come out in 76 as Metallic KO. He describes it this way, quote, Nobody gets killed, but Metallic KO is the only rock album I know where you can actually hear hurled beer bottles breaking against guitar strings. <sighs> During this show, they play a 45-minute version of Louie Louie which included right. improvised lyrics and verbal assault. And at one point, Iggy says, you pricks can throw everything in the world at me. Your girlfriend will still love me. And this is because the crowd is livid and they are launching eggs, ice, jelly beans, beer bottles, all at the band. Now, again, like I said, Iggy doesn't back down. He doubles down. The concert ends. You know how the concert ends? He tells the heckler, listen, a-hole, you heckle me one more time and I'm going to come down there and kick your ass. The biker tells Iggy to bring it. So Iggy jumps off the stage and the biker beats the crap out of him. End of show. 
<laughs> and it's the end of the band for the next 30 years. Now, I'm telling this story partly because it illustrates the state of Iggy at this point. He is out of control. I'm thinking about Iggy Pop and like I've seen him in concert and, and, and the times I've seen him on a screen, like yeah. how, you know. So remember, we I, I worked I worked with Larry Miller, this guy at work. I don't think you worked with him. No, he, he died right before I started. Yes, yeah, so he had, he had passed away, and he passed away. Um, I wasn't working there at the time, but he had passed away right after I had left. Um, but I got to spend time with Larry, and I don't think that every all the other guys or anybody else was doing that. <laughs> But I liked him, and so I he helped me. He taught me how to do stuff when I first started there. And he we went and watched rock and roll movies on his like giant enormous television. And one time, and, and his kids at the time were like middle schoolers, and they're running through the house. And and Larry has on the the since the nineteen seventy Cincinnati pop festival where he just fast forwards right to the part where Iggy has surfed off on the crowd and someone throws up the peanut butter and Iggy's uh, taking the peanut butter and rubbing it like all over his chest. Yeah. And I remember like his daughter is like turning. He's like, daddy, what's he doing? <laughs> Man. Oh, oh dude. Uh, you know that you kind of say that Iggy invented crowd surfing. Like there is a, there is a, a faction that will tell you that he's the godfather of that. He 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 definitely started jumping. Yeah. With no fear. Yeah. That takes a certain a certain proclivity and probably again a lot of drugs. <laughs> and the fact that the band breaks up does not help. Iggy yeah. deep dives into depression. He deep dives into addiction. He is so completely off his face. He's ignoring music and crashing every party he can get into. And it leads to and this. Boy, and boy, there's there's some YouTube badness of of Iggy on TV doing press for whatever he's doing when he is completely out of his cord, <laughs> and he looks so awful. And that, like now, it's like I wish that I could look like he he does now twenty oh, years ago, like Lord. how he looks. He's seventy. It, it's unbelievable, and he's in such good shape. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it would lead to an endless spiral that finally culminates in Iggy sleeping on the couch of James Williamson before getting kicked out and living on the streets briefly. He gets arrested for various misdemeanors, and he ends up in court. And the judge basically says, buddy, it is prison or rehab for you. You choose. And it's during this period he's diagnosed with something called hypomania. Now... He sees this doctor named Dr. Murray Zucker. And this is this is a quote from Dr. Zucker. I always got the feeling Iggy enjoyed his brain so much that he would play with it to the point of himself not knowing what was up or down. At times, he seemed to have complete control of turning this on and then turning that on and playing with different personas. He would out Bowie David Bowie. That's actually a quote from Dr. Zucker. Um... But then at other times, you get the feeling he wasn't in control. He was just bouncing around with it. It wasn't just a lack of discipline. It wasn't necessarily bipolar. It was God knows what. That's from his doctor. His doctor doesn't know how to diagnose it. Um, so 
this is where we get to the main attraction. The thing that I started with when I tested your friendship on what you would do if I was in a psychiatric hospital. Iggy yeah. gets put into UCL, UCLA's Neuropsychiatric oh. Institute. Oh, I know this wonderful, cute story. Keep going. It doesn't take long for David Bowie to think that he needs to go visit his buddy. They miss each other. And remember, we already established Bowie, not a stranger to the psych ward, not scared of that place. Uh, so he doesn't go alone on his trek to visit Iggs. Depending on which version of the story you hear, Bowie is either with Dean Stockwell, who was an actor okay. from that period, not super famous, like he did some time on Quantum Leap and stuff later. That might be what you know him from. Or he's with Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Still famous. But whoever it was, they were dressed up in spacesuits, completely stoned, and at the front door screaming, <laughs> we want to see Jimmy! Let us in! We want to see Jimmy! Uh, according to Iggy, they were actually let in on account of the fact that the staff realized it was David Bowie and Dennis Hopper. Uh, and they were a little starstruck. These guys are huge at this point. Uh, but oh my god! according to everyone involved, once the visitors got inside Iggy's room, they revealed that they had stuffed their spacesuits with drugs. This is Bowie talking. If I remember it right, it was me and Dennis Hopper. We trooped into the hospital with a load of drugs for Iggy. This was very much a leave your drugs at the door type of place. We were out of our minds, all of us. He wasn't well. That's all we knew. We thought we should bring him some drugs because he probably hadn't had any in a long time. Now, you might be shaking your head at Bowie for this one, but Iggy actually later credits Bowie for helping him survive his drug issues. And after this show of loyalty, the guys only become deeper friends. So this is in 65, or I'm, I'm sorry, 75. And if you follow either of these guys, you probably know about what is referred to as the Berlin period. And that's what happens after Iggy gets released. The guys move to Berlin together, determined to kick their drug habits. They live in the same apartment, and they co-create and collaborate for several years touching and working on some of the most influential and legendary projects of the 70s, including Iggy's The Idiot and Lust for Life and Bowie's Low. Iggy described it like this. Living in Berlin with Bowie and his friends was really interesting. The big event of the week was Thursday night. Anyone who was still alive and able to crawl to the sofa would watch Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> so in summary Murdoch what I'm really trying to say with all this the shorthand I shoot for in our friendship is like Iggy and Bowie status like why isn't that common parlance for badass friendships getting each other clean making some of the greatest albums either of them ever make but doing it together and then palling around looking equal parts ridiculous and awesome two things in closing one check the show notes because there's a particular collection of photos I found when doing research from this period uh and it's this one site that has all these photos of Bowie and Iggy during the Berlin period together. And talk about just charismatic. Well, you know, Bowie's not really good looking, but you know, you alluded to how, how fit Iggy pop is and how just like, there's something about him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seeing these dudes together in these black and white photos is jaw dropping. And there's a bunch of them. There's like probably 15, 20, two dozen. 
Um, and they're so good. So shout shouts to uh, artsheep.com for that archive. Really cool. Second thing, this research, and this is totally off topic, it's pointed out something I never realized before, which is, did Anthony Kiedis just totally steal the whole Iggy Pop thing? Wow. I just never have thought about it. So look at Anthony Kiedis and look at, just Google. Okay, if you're near a computer and you're listening to this, look up a picture of Anthony Kiedis and a picture of Iggy Pop, or go look at those pictures that I just mentioned, and there are going to be ones where you're like, why is there this black and white photo of a young Bowie hanging out with Anthony Kiedis? Like, he kind of straight up stole his look and sort of his whole stage thing, too. I mean, they look weirdly similar, but I do think a lot of it is intentional styling on the part of Kiedis. Like, it has to be. It's so strange. And so when I, like, once I started to notice that, I was like, am I the only person that thinks this? So I did a Google search. I'm not the only person that thinks this. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, man, I think it was in, in a, not rattle and hum. Yeah. Where BB King is telling Bono that, or the edge that he doesn't know how to play any chords at all. He just knows how to play licks and there's no, there's no new, new songs. Like there's only so many notes and they've already been played. You just find a couple that you like and it might be something. So you're saying it's the same thing for, for fashion. In personas, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I think so. I mean, imagine, think about how an entire industry, like the country music industry, like how in in periods, like say in the seventies, like if I said seventies male country music artists, like you could define and tell me what that person's dressed like, and they'd kind of all have sort of a very similar look. Yeah, but we're talking about guys from different decades. I mean, do you think yeah. you think Kiedis, it's a nod to Iggy Pop? You think it's an accident? Like, I, I don't know. I just find it really, really interesting. I think that it probably was a little purposeful. Oh, yeah, I do too, for sure. And, and, and two, plus he's ripped, and that's the girls like that stuff. <laughs> so here's yeah. my last question. Are you, in our friendship... Are you Bowie or Iggy? There's one that there's only one that's hypomanic. I'm I'm going to take Iggy. I'm Iggy. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely. I think I I I can't imagine it any other way. It, it's our new tagline. Aiming for Iggy and Bowie status. We're Brian and Murdoch. Thanks for tuning in to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Uh, you can hit up the email. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com. You can check out the website. We are the Story and. Until next time, Murdoch, what are we all doing? Keep telling stories. 